Welcome to Get Better at Garbage, the official podcast of Recycle Smart, Canada's fastest growing recycling technology company. In every episode, we talk tech, innovation, and inside secrets with interesting people doing interesting things from around the world. Welcome to this episode of Get Better at Garbage. And today we're actually joined by, uh, I would say, an old friend, someone I met uh, almost a decade ago in person and uh, have enjoyed watching his career progression as he's made a real impact on the waste and recycling world in the UK and now around the world. So today we're joined by Philip Mossop, CEO of Pentatonic. And Philip, you and I, I was trying to think this morning before, we probably met eight, 10 years ago uh, in London when you were running uh, back then the greenhouse and then wastecollection.com. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun. Huh? <laughs> that's right. Um, but yeah, today we're going to talk about your latest uh, venture into the circular economy. Um, so maybe we'll start out with that. We'll just tell our listeners a bit about where you grew up, where you went to school and your long, illustrious career prior to Pentatonic. You've done <laughs> lots of things from running bars and restaurants to waste collection to obviously what you're up to now. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to see you again. Uh, yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Um, my background, wow. Um, yeah, I grew up in the north of England in a, a, a county called Lancashire. Uh, it's about 30 miles north of Manchester for your, for your Canadian or American listeners. Um, grew up there in the 80s and uh, you know, I had a bit of a strange uh, entrance into the business world because back then um, I remember quite distinctly when I was about 15 years old, we had to see a careers advisor. And uh, I just finished reading Richard Branson's first autobiography. And um, when the careers advised me, asked me what I wanted to be, I said, an entrepreneur. She laughed at me and said, sweetie, that's not a job. You can't ouch, be an entrepreneur. Ouch. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and so I had this really weird thing that um, I kind of knew I wanted to be in business and do something. I just didn't know what. Um, so I took the tr- fairly traditional route. I went to school, um, graduated, um, went to university, college um, to do a business degree. Um, but the itch just became too much. And I was always wheeling and dealing. I was helping design websites for a period of time because uh, it, it, it was that era, this late 90s. So um, people were getting their first websites. And I just had a, an itch that I wanted to start something and build something. Um, that took me to London. I was about 19 and I was just doing sales. You know, I, was, I have a really classic sales background, which I think a lot of people do when they don't have a very specific skill set or, 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 or a discipline that they go into, you know, science, engineering or whatnot. Um, you kind of get pushed into like, well, you're, a, you're a, an extrovert. You're someone who can talk. Like, we'll put you in sales. And, and I, I kind of learned, learned my stripes the old school way. You know, I spent three years just knocking on doors in London and selling a, a variety of things from, gas and electricity contracts to multifunction machines it was whatever contract came in oh, and it was about my. that time what's mm. a multi what's a multifunction machine are you selling fax machines yeah printer printer <laughs> scanner all in one it's the oh. latest thing i could probably still remember the pitch now but yeah um old school style right um so yeah i guess i was about 20 years old and i ended up like a lot of people, because I don't think it's, uh, despite the fact it's super cool now, I still don't think many people grow up thinking, I'm going to get into the waste industry. Um, it's something that people end up falling into. And so it wasn't a predetermined thing that I wanted to do it, but I found myself working in the waste industry because what had happened at that time 
Uh, and I can, I, it's not often you can say thanks to the governments for a lot of things, but there's a couple of points in my career where the government has effectively made my career possible for me. And at that time, there was a lot of waste on the streets in London. And in order to try and combat it, the local authorities came up with a new scheme where the first thing they did was decouple the cost of waste recycling services from the business rates that businesses have to pay. You still have to pay business rates, no longer covered cost of a waste collection. And so in effect, they privatized the entire service, which of course just disrupts that industry and, and, and makes it a right breeding ground for competition and companies to spring up to start providing services. Um, at the same time, what they also did was issue every street in London, in central London um, at least, designated times of when they could place their waste out for collection. And you had to have it collected in, an, I think it was a 30 minute time window or something. And if you didn't, you got fined. And they actually had armies of environmental enforcement officers, which sounds terrifying, doesn't it? Who would walk around, much <laughs> like parking wardens, and if they found a bag of trash on the street outside the allotted time, they'd go through it, find out what, which business it came from, go into the business and give them a 50-pound fine, like $70. And this is like 20 years ago, nearly. Um, the big companies that operated in the industry, you know, they're running 26-ton vehicles, big, big dust carts, and they're trying to fill their rounds up in the most optimal way. They're not very agile. And so they really struggled to be able to meet those kind of demands. And again, that just made this right breeding ground for competition to spring up. So I was one of a number of people. There was, there was other companies that did the same. We spotted this opportunity that we could get these smaller vehicles that could zip in and around town much quicker, um, you know, three and a half ton vehicles and do collections on a much quicker basis and do more empties. And that would allow us to be able to guarantee to the businesses that they could meet these um, these collection times. So anyway, I grew that for uh, a number of years, was, was, was a partner in that business. Um, and that got me into the next business, which I then ran for a better part of 15 years. And that was a, another gap that I spotted in the market, certainly in the UK, where Large companies that had these big complex portfolios, you know, particularly people like retailers or landlords, it was hard for them to be able to get aggregated data around their service performance and around things like their levels of recycling, because typically they were using lots of fragmented suppliers all around the country. Or if they were using one of the national providers, they just weren't very good at giving them that kind of data. You know, they were they were pretty far behind the curve in terms of technology technological adoption. And so I created essentially a piece of software that would aggregate all of these suppliers, um, act as a brokerage, so the service would be performed by a third party. But what I would do is really focus on all the finesse layer, as I call it, um, where I was doing things like really great customer service. Um, instead of you know calling an 0800 number and being on hold for ages, it was you get straight through to the person. We get straight on the phone. We give you one invoice a month instead of you know, 500 invoices a month. We check them for you. We make sure they're okay. We provide you with data under performance. Um, and it was, again, just really timely because at that point, the government also in the UK, they introduced landfill tax and started to really increase it. The ramp up was, was huge. And so there was this tipping point where not recycling became more expensive. Um, sorry, yeah, not recycling became more expensive than recycling, which it wasn't for many years. So now you had this perfect storm. You had it costs more to not recycle. Um, there's lack of choice for, from an agility point of view to be compliant and not, not end up getting slapped with all these fines. And I'm not getting any kind of data. And there's this social pressure coming in where customers, and again, here we're talking like 2005 now, customers are saying, hey, I want to know how good you are as a company. How much do you recycle? And companies were fighting to try and get to that point. So it's just this perfect storm. Um, we grew that business. 
Um, it's great. We had some really, really great, great clients in the UK, big, big national and international chains. But I had this big problem. And this big problem, I'm sure, resonate with listeners of, uh, of this podcast, um, friends and colleagues in the industry. But, you know, we all know about the waste hierarchy. And, you know, by this point, I'd, I'd completely fallen in love with the industry and was, was a fervent believer in actually doing good. But effectively, I was, I was struggling to be able to walk the walk. I was great at doing the talk bit, talking about the waste hierarchy, but really our business model only enabled us to get involved towards the bottom, which is once we've collected something. I mean, we sure we advocated you know, minimal amounts of waste to landfill and we were working super hard to try and find great ways to, to recycle waste. But what the best waste is no waste at all. It doesn't really serve my waste company very well when I really charge people to produce the waste in the first place. And that's what introduced me to the circular economy. Um, and so I was itching to try and get into that, that that side of things and start looking at ways in which we could really genuinely treat waste as a resource, um, which I've been talking about for many years, but not actively doing, and started to, to think about things like product design and, and the way that products are even manufactured in the first place. Um, and so ultimately where I ended up two years ago was um, my business was, uh, was sold uh, and I joined Pentatonic. And Pentatonic is a, uh, a really cool company doing cool things. It's interesting how you, yeah, like you mentioned, um, when you're with, you know, the brokerage side, you only have so much influence and RecycleSmart obviously is in that spot, in that spot in the hierarchy where we don't have influence over production or, you know, product design decisions that are made up the uh, chain, which really have a huge influence on what comes out the back end of a, you know, a shop on the high street. Um, And And it's unfair too, right? Yeah, it's unfair because really at the end of the day, a lot of the people dealing at the waste have no say over, you know, the type of packaging it arrives in, what it's made out of, and they're left to kind of figure out, okay, what do I do with this? Um, so uh, explain yeah, on, on, on Pentatonic, kind of like, what's the genesis if I ran into you at a, at a pub and said, what do you do, Philip? How would you kind of explain it to uh, the layperson? Uh, essentially, Pentatonic is a design and technology company. Um, it's made up of a, a very different skill set um, than, than, than what a waste company would have. We employ designers, product designers, fashion designers, engineers, um, marketing people. And we really take the, uh, you use the word genesis, and, and, and that's exactly what we do at Pentatonic. We go back to the very genesis of the creation of a product. Because just constantly putting the responsibility on the recycling industry to find more ways to recycle something is not the answer. We all know that. I think the, the industry has done a, a, a reasonable job especially over the last few years, to come up with better ways to recycle things. But ultimately, if you don't take better control over what you're putting into the system, you're only putting more pressure on the system as it comes out. So Pentatonic works with companies to try and figure out two things, how to make products that are made um, from either a mono material um, or modular. And so mono material, uh, as the name suggests, is just using a single material stream in the product. And that doesn't mean it's just one particular thing because you can I, I often liken it to making eggs you know you can have scrambled poached it's the same egg but you can have them very different ways you can treat materials very differently and they come out in different ways whether you inject or mold it whether you print it whether you stretch it whether you thread it and um, so we work with um, companies to try and say look you don't need four different materials in this you only need one but you've got to do different things to get it there the second part is modularity so you know when it gets to the end of its life can it easily be taken apart again almost by human hand as opposed to relying on things like chemical recycling and mechanical recycling. 
What we then do is help these companies to scale these products in their businesses and link it directly to their brand. Because again, that's that, there's a feverish appetite from consumers to know that they're making the right choice. They want to see these companies doing the right thing. And so Pentatonic adds this, again, it's almost a finesse layer to say, let's not just make this super cool product. Let's, let's, let's create a narrative around this. Let's storytell. And let's put this really up front and center in the public's perception so that it starts conversations, so that it starts to move the needle. Um, in and of itself, you know, an individual product that we create for a, one of our clients isn't going to solve climate change. No, there is no silver bullet for that. But what we hope that the products that we release, uh, uh, that we create and release with our clients or independently on, under our own brands, um, is that it, it, can, it helps to, 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 to build those layers on these conversations that we all have to have about how do we make conscious consumption in a sustainable way. It, it's interesting because when I went on the Pentatonic website, three things that you said. One is you know making things out of materials that are easy to recycle. So instead of using three types of plastic in a product, maybe we can use you know one type of polymer. And then also yeah. the ability to take it apart. So it's like, well, instead of gluing this plastic handle to this, you know, thing that we're making we're going to screw it or use some kind of fastening device so that when we go to take it apart we can actually get it apart but the other thing on that really came from pentatonic was the products are very uh you know not to use a cheesy word beautiful but you know i think when a lot of people think of recycled products they think of something that's going to be ugly and bumpy and you know and be inferior to something that was produced from virgin materials and i remember talking to a a guy that ran a, a company that made park uh furniture like benches and picnic benches and things right. like that out of recycled plastic. And he said, you know, for the first five years of the company, we just pushed the recycled material angle. And that, that's how we tried to sell. And he's like, we, it didn't really work that well. And then eventually they said, let's just design really, really good looking furniture that is really, you know, high performing. So when people look at that, they say, that's a beautiful bench or that's a beautiful picnic bench. And then right. they used recycled material. But he said, most of the people bought the furniture because they really liked the way they looked at it. And the fact that it was made from recycled material made them feel great when they made that purchase. And it also, they could charge a bit of a premium. But um, it's so true. What, are, what are some of the products that Pentatonic has designed in terms of just kind of give us the lay of the land? Because if someone's listening, they've never heard of Pentatonic, they're like, do you guys make cars or is it, you know, coaches? Sure. Or? I, think, I think you're absolutely right in what you say. And, and credit for that goes down to the two founders of the company, Jamie and and Johan, Jamie in particular, comes from products, um, a product consumer marketing background. And that's exactly the, the, the ethos that we have is, is to make products that are as, if not more beautiful than their virgin material counterparts, because then you just remove any barriers to entry. And so it's, it's, no, uh, it's not a coincidence that that's, that's the case, because again, it's part of that elevating it so that people really want to talk about it. Um, we typically focus on what we call tools of modern living. Um, it's probably the best way to describe it. These are everyday things that we we interact with. Um, so for example, we've made a reusable dining kit um, that's made from recycled polycarbonate, which is the material we find in CDs. Um, th this is a project that we released last year. It's a collaboration with um, I Am Other, which is the creative collective founded by Pharrell Williams. Um, and of course, if you think about Pharrell and, and his his legacy and his career, he's, he's, he's either recorded or produced what will amount to hundreds of millions of CDs that have been released around the world. And, you know, who listens to CDs anymore? Um, very, very few people. Maybe, maybe it'll get a resurgence like vinyl, who knows? But, um, you know, it's, it's essentially an obsolete waste stream. So we had this really great this, this vision of being able to connect the dots on this. Of We've got 
you know, the IM other team, I'm led, led by Pharrell, who's got this great platform. We've got this waste stream that's very obvious and, and clear in people's minds. Then we've got this new product, which is really super cool. And so the pebble that we created, this reusable dining kit, is a knife, fork, spoon, straw, chopsticks, and it's all in this little carry case. Um, that's also solving the, the, the question around single-use plastics because that's a completely different issue that we're trying to fix is, is everyone's consumption of single-use plastics. So for us, we sort of looked at this and like, oh my goodness, we can do this and, and tick so many boxes here. It becomes this super fun project. Um, it, it, it appeals to people on different levels. So we'll pick things like that, reusable dining kit. We've, we've recently partnered with um, uh, Starbucks. We've produced a whole range of furniture for Starbucks, including what's called the Bean Chair, which is, is the... the iconic armchair that they have in their, their cafes. Um, and it's made out of the, the recycled materials that you'd find in, in Starbucks packaging. And we work with fashion companies. We collect used textiles and we'll do things like re-yarning and creating non-wovens. And then we'll create new, new products. And we're, we're at a point now where we're creating products that are such good quality um, that they're actually going on sale, retail sale in our clients' businesses, being sold back to the consumers. So we've created a very genuine circular closed loop there that we collect in um, post-consumer materials. And when you go drop off your, 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 your clothing, when you're doing your shopping, it's coming back into the store six months later as a completely new product. Um, we've also targeted things like um, electronics. So we made a whole range of glassware um, made out of broken smartphone screens. Um, and we've worked with companies like Burger King, um, who had a particular issue in the UK um, around their plastic toys that were being given out because there was um, two young schoolgirls who did a petition uh, around single-use plastics. And so we created a campaign called Meltdown and um, we, we made a whole range of trays and, uh, and products for Burger King made out of the melted down toys. Yeah, I think the one thing I realized from looking at the product line is that a lot of it is trying to like you said, solve both a, you know, kind of a problem on the supply side with CDs, but then also, you know, the, the reusable, um, you know, cutlery question, I think like a lot of people have tackled it, but not in a, like no one has done the apple of reusable cutlery, which I think is what Pentatonic was, was trying to achieve, which is that, you know, easier to use really nice design that actually is going to fit in your daily life. And you're going to use it partly because you feel good about it, partly because it's just smartly designed and you can throw it in your purse without you know, finding out your knife is stuck to a piece of gum at the bottom of, uh, of your bed. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so we have two traditions on the uh, podcast. One is we always ask the egg question. And the other one, I, I always forget to introduce Ty at the beginning. So I'm glad that we uh, have stuck to that tradition. So uh, <laughs> co-hosting today is my often neglected, uh, long-suffering digital marketing coordinator, Ty Quintel. So Ty, uh, you're going to take over and ask a few questions, dig in a bit more on the Burger yeah, King project, which is a, was it, I think kind of a real landmark for, for Pentatonic really got you guys on the map working with Burger King. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was taking a look at the website and I just noticed that you guys have a postseason program. Uh, you mind telling me more about that? So yeah, we started the postseason program um, during the pandemic. It's something we've worked on for quite a while beforehand because we have a whole division that focuses on fashion and textile waste and figuring out ways to to minimize that and to to bring back materials and unlock the value in them to use them again and again um but what became apparent in the pandemic is that retailers were not going to be able to shift the same volume of, of clothing that they normally would have done had you know retail stores been open obviously closing them for a long time really changed the um the, the picture on that so what we tried to do was link together people in need um the uh, organizations charities um anybody that might have a use for some kind of textile and the fashion companies themselves 
with a way for us to be able to try and shortcut the process a little bit um, and uh, rather than going through what, what would be a traditional method of, of disposal, which is quite a long cycle of going through mechanical separation, a lot of it not being able to be reutilized again and the downgrading of materials so that it just makes it very, very hard to create something good from them. So Postseason's got two, two arms to it, I suppose. One is working with fashion companies directly to figure out, again, how they can change the way that they design and make the products and to incorporate a lot more recycled content in there. So we work with fashion companies and give them access to materials like synthetics and natural fibers that we've worked with our suppliers on to, to extract. They start to incorporate that more into their uh, materials. And now it's expanded. Postseason's now expanded to all kinds of things. We're offering repair services um, for, for um, companies to um, integrate a repair service into their offering. Um, we're also taking back return stock. So now that there are clear processes in place that if you do return something and it's not able to find its way back onto the shelf, which for the vast majority of return stock in fashion, it doesn't, sadly. But now we're creating supply chains where we can take those materials, separate them out, extract them very carefully, and prioritizing the good materials and natural fibers in one, synthetics in another. And then we we weave them back into the supply chain through through our design work with the, the fashion companies. So yes, super fun. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, so I know that like COVID-19 really kind of hit February, uh, March 2020. Um, and I'm sure you guys were in the middle of a bunch of different projects, but how did you guys weather uh, some of the disruptions, especially for your clients and, and uh, the projects you were working currently? I think overall, we're, we're, we were very lucky and very grateful that um, the clients that we work with, their sustainability goals, are they're long-reaching now. Most of the clients we work with have got 2030 goals. Um, so even a lot of projects got put on hold for sure, um, but we've seen a return of almost all of them. And actually, business has increased considerably um, just in the last few months. And I think that speaks, and I'm so happy to be able to say this, that despite what an absolutely awful time um, you know, we've all experienced as, in the pandemic, Businesses recognize that sustainability can't be one of the casualties of the pandemic and the economic hit. And almost all of the major clients that we spoke to, and you know, we, we're very lucky. We get to work with some of the world's biggest companies and to, to have conversations with them where, you know, whatever their margins have been hit or, you know, their, their, you know, their staff have been diminished and, and they've suffered loss. Um, they've said, you know what, we're still going to continue with these programs because it's so important and, and the, the environment can't, can't come at it, can't be one of the costs of, uh, of the pandemic. So yeah, we, we weathered it. We, um, we got through. Um, Philip, what's been the response to the smoke ring? Um, this is one product I saw on the website and thought some people might think this is really gross, but what has been the response yeah. to that product? Uh, you, you're absolutely right. Um, it was a mixed bag. Um, half people love it and half hate it. And that is exactly what we were going for. It was one of the early products that we made in order to start the conversation. It was never, it was never a commercial product that we were trying to genuinely get people to, to start start using. But for your listeners, um, the smoke ring is a, uh, it's a it's a single band, and it looks like looks like mar marble. Um, you can see it on our website, pentatonic.com. It's actually quite a but nice product. Actually, like if if someone it, saw you know that really on. Nice? A 
yeah, they'd say, oh, that looks like a nice, you know, it's a nice ring. Yeah, but it's made from cellulose acetate, which is the, the, the material that is in the filter of a cigarette. Now, this is a podcast, so your listeners can't, uh, can't see this. But if you imagine when you're smoking a cigarette and you hold your fingers to your mouth to take a puff, the idea was something that is on your lips that is so harmful uh, that, that's on your finger there then actually becomes something beautiful on the same hand. So instead of smoking something, you're wearing something. So we had this idea that, you know, the same action of having this on your hand, instead of it being a cigarette, it could be a piece of jewelry. Um, and then we packaged it up in this uh, this neat little package and called it the smoke ring. And yeah, we got uh, we got hate mail for that. Um, but you know what it did? Um, it generated the conversation but, but, though, right? It yeah, it did. It would, yeah, more than that as well. It was in the, in, in the early days. So it generated as lots of clients because people just thought it was very clever. And of course, they wanted to know, look, this is cool. It's got people talking. So what else could we do with this? And then you can take it into something that's a little more practical. I think that's one of the important things too is a lot of the things that Pentatonic will do um, on our own steam, from our own brand, will be things like that, passion projects and things that can create a narrative. But when it comes to our clients' businesses, it's all about what can scale. How do you work with a client's business? And, and often the kind of companies we're working with have got ginormous supply chains and they're saying, oh, there's nothing we can do. And we're saying, actually, you don't need to, you don't need to change everything, but let's work with what you've got and figure out a way to start bringing some of these practices in, start thinking about the material choices that you, that you, that you have and, and how we can start to adopt some of these things. And it's quite incredible how that snowballs and how quickly you can make a really big impact. So in a lot of businesses, there's always a challenge either on the supply side or on the sales side. So what is the challenge in Pentatonic's business? Is it finding materials and partners to work with? Or is it, uh, it yeah, what is the challenge here? Is it finding materials, partners, or is it actually selling stuff? No issue selling stuff because the whole world now knows it needs to move towards these practices, um, whether through social pressures or through even political ones, legislative, like in the EU now, there's something called the EU circular economy package. And there's this thing called extended producer responsibility. And it's a whole suite of legislation that's designed to get companies to look at the way that they're designing products. So actually, we're going to see a huge shift in uh, how companies are designing products over the next five years. I would say the biggest challenge we face is A, we can only make products out of recycled materials. We don't use virgin materials. So that poses quite a lot of engineering problems often. You know, with things like polymers, you'll do things like add chain extenders and additives that create the rigidity of the tensile strength. We, can, we, we can't do that. Um, otherwise, we, we're just another product company creating a product. So we have to somehow figure out quite a lot of complex um, engineering challenges. Like furniture, for example, we've, we've produced lots of furniture ranges in the past, typically in furniture. The secrets are all like hidden, you know, underneath it's lots of staples and glues and things to hold it all together. We can't yeah. use any of that stuff. So we've had to create entirely new ways to, to create tooling sets. Um, and, and we tested like 40 different adhesives to find which one was most soluble in water. So that's probably the biggest challenge, shortly followed by the other concept that we have to constantly reinvent and rebuild our supply chain because when we get a new client in a new geographical location, it also doesn't work if we then start shipping waste materials halfway around the world to then ship them back as products. So we're constantly having to find new partners. But that's also what's really exciting about this industry because there's so many new uh, players coming into the market all the time. And we see this now with, you know, whether it be footwear, trainers, or, you know, mycelium and uh, pineapple skins, mushrooms, whatever it is, there's, there's a ton of research and there's a ton of uh, practical applications starting to just show themselves. And I think and it's not going to go away. We're going to see that more and more over the next five, 10 years, totally. 
yeah, there's some really interesting innovation going on in the circular economy space. Um, like even on this podcast, we've talked to, you know, Chop Value, which is a Vancouver company making, you know, basically circular economy products out of chopsticks. And uh, we just recently talked to a company fabric out of Paris that's making, you know, bricks out of recycled textiles. So it seems like there's, there's some momentum starting where people are starting to look at these materials and say, okay, how do we make something out of these and how do we do it locally close to where it's generated versus in the past? I think it was like, you know, get it made far away, use it, ship it far away when you're done with it. And exactly. We don't care. We don't care about it in the middle. Um, just quickly yeah. before we sign off here, what, uh, what are you guys working on? That's new and cool and exciting. Uh, obviously don't uh, disclose any proprietary secrets, but what's in the pipe, <laughs> the uh, what's coming down the pipe that's uh, going to launch soon. Well, we actually just launched something last week. I'm uh, really excited about this. It's a joint venture that we've been working on for about four years. Um, uh, it's called Masuku. Um, you can see that at uh, Masuku, M-A-S-U-K-U.com. And it is a filtration system. It's a face mask, which, of course, we've seen go from almost no adoption pre-pandemic, in, certainly in the West, to now everybody wearing them. And you know, a lot of people can't wait to get rid of them again. But... Actually, we started working on a face mask. One of our joint venture partner is Natalia Vojinova. And um, Natalia uh, is a, uh, a, a superb entrepreneur and philanthropist, but, but spent most of her career as a supermodel traveling around the world. And, you know, she, she was in cities where the air quality is just absolutely appalling and it's been getting worse. Um, and I think it's one of... I think it's it's it, it, it's not written about anywhere near as much as it should be, but you know, London often is as bad as Shanghai for air quality, and That's it doesn't true. get talked yeah. about. Yeah, and we knew back then that face masks were unsustainable. They're made using very unsustainable methods and technologies. And of course, anyway, fast forward past the pandemic, and it's it, that that problem's exponentially grown. So we've been working on a technology where we have released a face mask that uses a innovative technology that we've developed which uses electrospinning of nanofibers. These nanofibers are a thousand times thinner than a human hair, um, which creates this, this, this symmetrical layer. So it creates a filter that gives the super light, gives incredible amount of protection. It's equivalent to an FFP2 standard. Um, but most importantly, we can do it using a biodegradable material. Um, so we've created a face mask that is, I think, far superior to anything that's on the market right now. And what's super cool about it is that we're actually manufacturing this in-house. So we've created a factory, uh, manufacturing facility in the north of England. It's called the Air Lab. And we're actually producing this mask. It, it went on sale last week. Um, reaction's been really great. But yeah, we've created a really sustainable, very advanced, highly performing face mask. Cool. We will link through to that on the uh, podcast post. And uh, I think any brands out there listening that are looking to stick their toe into the circular economy or at least start to explore, you know, what would this look like to make a product from a recycled material and then also make something that is easily recyclable, uh, then I think reaching out to uh, Philip, it would be uh, an interesting discussion at least to get that started because it's going to take companies a while to fully transform their supply chains. But I think a lot of them are realizing we got to start somewhere. And start to figure this out because it's coming. It's either regulation is going to push us there or just straight up economics. So, and then uh, one final question: it's, it's been a tradition, I'm sure, with the uh, Get Better at Garbage podcast. Is uh, how do you like your eggs? Um, if you if you eat eggs, um, do you like them scrambled, poached, sunny side up? Well, you see, I read this question, but it, it is such an unfair question, Ty, because it's um, it, 
you know, it entirely depends on what it's going with, right? I mean, who has poached eggs with smoked salmon? So it depends. If I'm having it with smoked salmon, scrambled all the way um, with steak, sunny side up. But if it's with um, smashed avocado on toast, then definitely poached. But I love eggs, full stop. Uh, well, thanks very much, Philip, for joining us for this episode of Get Better at Garbage. And we will get this episode posted along with some links to the cool projects that you guys are working on. And if anyone is looking for a smoke ring, it sounds like the only way to get one is by uh, getting to know Philip personally because they're not available. <laughs> so if you're looking for that special Mother's Day gift, uh, goes up to Philip and maybe he's got something that's not available. Uh, as <laughs> Thanks, Philip, for joining us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your time. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Remember, you can recycle past episodes at www.recycle-smart.com forward slash podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for joining us. And remember to get better at garbage, rock the recycling, and save some serious dough.